0: to Growing in God's Word, a Bible Class Recap. It's a weekly summary of the discussions we have in our Sunday morning Bible class at Trinity, Trinity Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor Thomas Fricky, and I'll be guiding you through some of the discussions we've had while exploring topics of relevance to Christians in today's world. Today's topic, Jonah, the Reluctant Prophet, Part 3. In the 1920s, times were good writes Dr. Mark Brown, professor emeritus of history at Wisconsin Lutheran College. Partygoers were beating Prohibition by drinking bootleg gin at speakeasies, and Babe Ruth was hitting home runs. All that changed in the 1930s, as America was plunged into hard times during the Great Depression, while in Europe, Hitler and Mussolini rose to power. The 1940s drew us into the Second World War, but the 1950s were a time of relative prosperity and stability. Brown continues, from the 1930s, people remember the assassination of President Kennedy, the music of the Beatles, hippies, and flower power, and national turmoil over the Vietnam War. He adds, if you can visualize all these scenes, you are in a much better position to understand a story set in 20th century America. Well, what Dr. Brown's point is, is that that's true also when we read the Old Testament prophets. If you have some idea of what's happening at the various periods during Israel's history, then uh, you can better understand what they're talking about. When we read our Bibles, it's good for us to have some understanding of those times. An understanding of the historical background of Jonah's day Is going to help us to understand a little bit more of the book of Jonah. He served as a prophet during the long reign of King Jeroboam II. This was about 793 until 752 BC. He served in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea, according to 2 Kings chapter 14. And meanwhile, in the southern kingdom in Judah, Azariah, also known as Uzziah, enjoyed a long and prosperous rule, too. Both Israel and Judah were enjoying a time of political stability and economic prosperity. Assyria, on the other hand, is a a ruthless, dominant world superpower. Nineveh is its capital city. But during Jonah's lifetime, Assyria was experiencing some internal divisions, and this left the country's leaders too preoccupied at home to be able to threaten Israel and Judah. Jonah lived during the 8th century before Christ, the 700s before Christ, a contemporary of the great prophets Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. And so today what we'd like to do is take a closer look at this century. And As we do so, you may be surprised to find that there are a number of similarities to our own day. So, as we're thinking about this, how would you compare or characterize each of the decades that uh, uh, we we had in, a, in American history? What do you, what do you think of with the 1920s, the 1940s, the 1960s, and the 1980s? Uh, we we asked this question to the group on Sunday morning. People did not rem- remember anything directly from the 1940s, um, or a lot of people did not, but some. Uh, said, you know, this was the time of World War II. Um, A lot of us uh, grew up uh, a little bit later, but we were deeply influenced by the culture that uh, recalled what happened uh, during World War II, the rationing, and uh, family members who had gone off to war. In the 1960s, people remembered, of course, the Vietnam War, the hippie era, the Beatles, uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, moon landing. Uh, the moon landing was uh, kind of the, the, the capstone of the space age during the 1960s and the excitement over uh, the kind of space exploration that was taking place. Uh, it was kind of the heyday um, uh, still of uh, Major League Baseball. And uh, maybe also uh, NFL football was coming into its own during the 60s. And, of course, there were race riots that also took place during that time as people were migrating from the South during the Civil Rights era. Uh, people remembered the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King, Jr. In the 1980s, uh, people remembered the blow-dried the hair, uh, Bill Cosby, The Cosby Show, The Challenger Disaster, Um, the explosion of the Space Shuttle uh, in 1986, Ronald Reagan uh, saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, and uh, the Iran hostage uh, deal. And it was also the decade of uh, the the AIDS crisis. It was a time that affected the church. This is about the time when most congregations started to begin to offer an alternative to the common cup in communion. So uh, let's take a look at some of the Bible passages that are pertinent to to us uh, in talking about the prophets of this era. From Amos chapter 4, Amos says, uh, "Hear Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, Bring us some drinks. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by His Holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fishhooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites. For this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you can tell that this portion of Amos' book is dripping with sarcasm. In chapter 5, uh, the prophet speaking in behalf of the Lord says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And he goes on from there. And he says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Uh, According to Amos, what's happening here is that the wealthier people of Israel are treating the poor like dirt. And they're doing so. And then going to church and acting as if everything was fine and their lives were good and upright. The Lord had commanded the people to come to the temple for worship and to offer their sacrifices there. And now he says, he hates their assemblies, and he's not going to accept their offerings. They're, they're shallow, they're hypocritical. This is not true worship. Uh, what I think we learn from all of this is what God wants is not just an external uh, surface kind of religiosity when we gather together for worship. What he wants is our heart. And that takes true repentance and acknowledgement that we have not lived up to what the Lord expects of us as his believers, and then to to leave with repentant hearts, um, with the joy of God's forgiveness, and a determination to share the Savior's love with other people. And that's not happening during the time of the prophet Amos among the people. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and preach the, the good news, the gospel, uh, some might argue he, he told them, uh, "Preach the good news to every creature. Don't, don't go and care for the poor." And that there may be some legitimacy to saying that the gospel message that Jesus is the savior, of the world is predominant in what we want to share with the world. And yet, at the same time, being compassionate toward people in need is not something that that Jesus is opposed to. Um, and in fact, in many cases. Uh, helping out people who are in some kind of physical need opens the door for the message of the Gospel and is a very attractive thing for people who who simply want to know that there is a God who loves them. Well, we're the face of the Lord to our neighbor here in this world. And so it's important to care for the poor. It's part of the fifth commandment that God has given to us as well. In Isaiah chapter 3, The Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and the headbands and the crescent necklaces, the earrings and the bracelets and veils, the headdresses and anklets and sashes. And, and he goes on from there that the Lord is going to be removing these things. And uh, so what, what do you think of the behavior of Israel's women as described by Isaiah? Uh, it, it's really about show. It's about pleasure. It's about um, uh, external attractiveness, uh, flirtiness, and, and sexuality. Um, but what the Lord actually says is this. We, we read this portion of uh, first. Peter in the New Testament where Peter says your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes rather it should be that of your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight so what what Peter is saying here is that inner beauty is much better And that inner beauty is based in a kind of humility before God, uh, modesty, and uh, just uh, simply uh, making sure that God is is first place in your life and having care and compassion for other people. It does not mean that uh, God is opposed to uh, a woman's external uh, beauty as well, but That isn't where uh, God sees the greatest worth in a person. The Lord looks on the heart. Beauty is a blessing, but godly humility and true spiritual wisdom is is much, much greater, uh, much more valued in God's eyes. We read from the book of Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. So we've heard from Amos. We've heard from Isaiah. Now we see what Hosea says. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. You stumble day and night, And the prophets stumble with you. So it's not just the people, it is the prophets who are going along with them now. So the false prophets. And then uh, Hosea continues, because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. He's speaking to the priests here. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness, and it will be like like people, like priests. Um, And continuing from there, a spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Well, what Hosea is saying here is that uh, even Israel's religious leaders are failing God and the people. They've broken God's commandments. They've been very poor spiritual leaders. They're empty from a spiritual point of view. And we can see a lot of this happening in our world today. I mean, the time was when in the Lutheran church, uh, the American Lutheran church, uh, a, a, a a document was accepted that um, sort of compromised uh, the strength of the synod's former testimony to the inerrancy, uh, the truthfulness of the Bible, God's word, and as the sort of the 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 tip of the wedge uh, got into um, uh, got into the the, the church there with that, that document, which I believe was accepted in the 1960s, um, the Bible was spoken of as inspired. You could read that statement properly and understand every word is true. And yet at the same time, it opened the door for people to say, I, I, there are parts of God's word that I don't think speak to me or to our world here today. Uh, inspired, but not without error. Human error could have crept into the Word of God. Well, what that does is that it puts human beings in a position of judgment over against God himself and what the Lord himself has has said. We also think in today's world of those who promote a kind of a health and wealth gospel, if you do this, then God is going to bless you and reward you by giving you this. Of course, that ignores a good deal of what the Lord tells us in his word. Some of the most godly examples of believing piety, uh, the the piety that God values the most, are very, very poor people. We think of the uh, poor Lazarus the beggar at uh, the home of an unnamed rich man in the story that Jesus told her, the poor widow who gave her two copper coins to the temple treasury and trusted in the lord that she had great faith jesus says so uh, israel's religious leaders were failing god and the people uh, wealth we should talk about this for a little bit can be a blessing in some ways wealth can also be a problem it helps the church to be able to do things but you know once wealth becomes a goal in itself rather than uh, being a means by which the goals of the kingdom of God are able to be achieved, then, then that wealth has become a curse for us. And it's a good thing for us to to recognize that um, uh, we we be good stewards. We need to be good stewards of what it is that God has given to us. But uh, money, wealth, is not the be all and end all for our lives personally and individually as Christians, nor for as our collective life as a Christian congregation. Along those lines, I mean, we have a nice church building here at Trinity. It's not a soaring cathedral, but it is nice. Um, our worship service our services I think are pleasant and well done, but rather ordinary um, in, in a lot of ways, nothing all that fancy or flashy. Some churches have a contemporary style of worship, others cultivate a more elaborate sense of tradition and ritual in their worship. Uh, So what do we think about all of these things? Uh, What role does beauty play in architecture, in worship style, in uh, the kinds of things that we have in the interior of our church buildings. Um, what about uh, different styles of worship and music? And the, the, I think the 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 simple point that we want to make here is that artistic beauty is something that is um, has a ministerial use in the church, not magisterial a uh, position. Um, in other words, it is to serve the worship of the people. And the goal of worship, which is um, listening to and connecting to the Lord our God. Um, not a magisterial, in other words, being the thing that controls everything else. Okay? So, uh, beauty in worship is to be put to service to the ultimate goal of worship, growing in our Christian faith before the Lord by listening to his word and taking part in the sacraments. Okay, Uh, let's take a look at Amos chapter 8. In the book of Amos, uh, Amos says, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Now understand, the historical context is that uh, both Israel in the north and Judah in the south are doing relatively well. There's a a period of peace and uh, relative prosperity going on, and uh, the people are not disturbed by a lot of different kinds of problems and disruptions. But Amos is saying there's going to be a famine of hearing the Word of God. Can you think of a worse judgment on God's people? Uh, A famine of hearing the Word. Uh, where the people are not going to have the opportunity to hear that word. And sadly, that day did come. Um, You think about how the people were carried off into captivity uh, when the Assyrians came in and uh, devastated the northern kingdom, or uh, after that time when the Babylonians came in and uh, carried off the people of Judah into captivity in Babylon. A famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Is that happening today? That's a good question. we spent some time talking about this in our Bible study on Sunday morning. Uh, You know, since the time of COVID, uh, people have not been present in worship. And uh, our physical presence before the God is something that is very important. Uh, One of the reasons I believe the Lord's Supper has that uh, physical element of the bread and the wine, uh, also with baptism, is because God wants there to be that sort of physical connection. Uh, We walk away uh, not just spiritually blessed with the the reassurance of our forgiveness, but we physically take part in the forgiveness that God gives to us by partaking of his uh, body and blood given and shed for us in the Lord's Supper, in the sacrament. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, but we're not having as many, we're not seeing as many people in our worship services as we did even five years ago, let alone 25 or 35 years ago. And it is disturbing to, to see that. Some of that is due to demographics. Uh, we don't have as many children born to families today as in the height of the baby boom. But at the same time, some of it is simply due to the fact that uh, Christianity has a weaker commitment to God and to hearing his word than it has uh, in uh, in the previous century, in the 20th century. The 21st century is just different, and we're living now in a post-Christian kind of culture. A famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Is this God's judgment on, on us? We have to consider the possibility and think, uh, you know, how can we reverse this trend? One of the questions we uh, discussed on Sunday morning, uh, if the nation was still relatively prosperous and stable, how would the people have reacted to prophecies like the ones that we, we have heard? And sad to say, I think the people would have reacted with a great big yawn. Just not even thinking, uh, do we really have to listen to what the prophets are telling us? Things are going just fine for us. Maybe that's, maybe that's where our problem lies today. Here's a question for you. Agree or disagree? The prophetic careers of Amos, Micah, Isaiah, and their contemporaries were wasted efforts. What do you think about that? Were they wasted efforts? Uh, our Sunday morning group uh, basically concluded, not really, not at all. I mean, it may have appeared that way, that their words were falling on deaf ears, but God had spoken, they were faithful, His word works. Some believed, and it did encourage uh, their faith. Uh, they took the message to heart and repented of their sins and and uh, and put their trust in the gospel promise of a Savior to come. Um, Even in this sense, it would be true, too, that we have the words of the prophets still today and they are of great value to us, to call us to repentance and to lead us to put our hope in the Savior who has come. Do you think that if God were to bless our country with better times and greater economic prosperity, we asked on Sunday, Uh, Do you think that if that were the case, more people would express their gratitude and it would increase the number of people in worship? If God blessed us, gave us better times, would that make a difference? And uh, the almost universal response in the Bible class on Sunday was, yeah, right, it does not make uh, people more appreciative of God, actually it, it's more the opposite, that when difficult times come, that's when people recognize they have no place to turn other than to the Lord, and it does draw them closer to God. So they saw the benefit in, in God um, sending times of discipline on people. So good times don't generally bring people to feel as though they, they need to be more dependent upon the Lord. Agree or disagree, God's, God's judgment on his people is proof for uh, that his love for them is fading. Is God's love for his people fading if he allows a judgment to come upon them? Well, the answer to that question is, uh, I don't know, it's not necessarily... Uh, that God's love is fading. In fact, sometimes discipline, stern discipline, is the evidence of love. God is allowing difficult times to happen because he cares about the people. And we need to recognize that in our own lives. Uh, I think sometimes people feel that if a lot of things are going wrong in my life, God must not love me. Well, it may be exactly the opposite. Um, It may be that, no, these things are happening because God knows that this is good. He knows I can withstand it. Or He knows that the way I handle what's happening in my life is going to provide a powerful testimony to people who are watching. And these are all things for us always to be keeping in mind. How about this one, Uh, agree or disagree, the number of active members in a Christian congregation is a good way to judge the faithfulness of its called servants, its pastors or teachers. And our Bible class on Sunday morning immediately saw that, no, 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 Um, the number of people in church could be uh, maybe a judge as to whether or not uh, it's called workers are faithful, if there is some turmoil that's caused because of a scandal in the on the part of somebody in a leadership position or whatever, but usually not. Look at the myth, uh, the ministry of Jesus. Um, he was completely faithful in all that he did, and how did it end up? It, it ended up almost as if uh, there was hardly any evidence of the fact that Jesus was speaking the word of God and it, it touched people's hearts, not until after his death and his resurrection. And then everything, uh, began to uh, bear fruit. Uh, the, the law worked in people's hearts, the gospel message of our Savior's forgiveness through his life given for us and um, his resurrection from the grave. Uh, it, it ended up uh, taking root and bearing tremendous fruit. What a beautiful thing it is to be able to see that. So the number of active members in a Christian congregation is not necessarily an indication of the faithfulness of its called workers. But it is something that causes us concern when we see that not as many people are being as faithful, perhaps, as in years past. It gives us something to pray about and something, uh, a goal to work toward uh, to more diligently share law and gospel, sin and grace with God's people. So after being patient for hundreds of years, God's judgment would finally come. The Lord was going to use Assyria as his tool of judgment in the 8th century B.C. to remove the northern kingdom, Israel, and scatter the people from the land. That message made prophets like Amos, Isaiah, and Micah unpopular with many of their fellow Israelites. And we'll pick this up next week. So that's our conclusion um, uh, to Growing in God's Word um, this week, our Bible Class Recap. Thank you for listening. With a pancake breakfast that's happening this coming weekend, we will not have a Bible study, a Sunday morning Bible study this weekend. Uh, the breakfast is going to help support the seventh and eighth grade class trip to Martin Luther College, to the Mall of America, the Wisconsin State Capitol, Luther Prep School, and Wisconsin Dells. So we'll see you in two weeks as we continue our look at the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Sunday morning Bible study meets in the Commons at 9.15. We'd love to see you there. Come and join us. Until then, keep on growing in God's Word.